Hey, Not Past It listeners, we're back with another History Domino episode. You know that thing where you line up a bunch of upright dominoes and then you tip over that first one and it hits the next one and the next one and the next one and it goes like... Well, in our version, each domino is a mini history story that leads you to the next event in a chain reaction and will end up at a completely different and unexpected place than where we started. Because y'all know, it's all about the journey. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. On today's episode, in honor of April Fool's Week, we're starting 222 years ago with a hilarious discovery by a British chemist and going all the way to the spring of 1940 when the world is introduced to a comic book villain, a real jokester. We've done the hard work, folks. The dominoes are all lined up and we'll knock them down after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Would it be fair to call you a comic expert? Sure, why not? Yes. Sure. It's, it's, Great. Claim it's, it, you know, it, Yeah, I do have to claim it. I have to claim my power, such yeah. as it is. Well, Since know. today's history domino journey takes us through some unexpected comic book history, I wanted to invite Evan Narciss. He writes for comic books, video games, animation. You may have seen his name on such things as Rise of the Black Panther by Marvel Comics, Genlock on HBO Max, or the video game Marvel's Spider-Man Miles Morales. So I'm a professional nerd. That's what it says on my business cards, which I don't have anymore. Well, I'm excited to to talk about maybe one of the better known comic book stories. But before we get to the comics, we're going to have to go back 222 years ago to the late 1700s to a rather amusing scientific discovery. Domino number one. Kapow! We're beginning at the end of the Enlightenment period. Oh, okay. 
So, you know, this was a time where Western European thinkers were dramatically changing, you know, thoughts around science, uh, philosophy, literature. If I can remember correctly, there's a lot of philosophical discussion about the intrinsic rights of man and societal structures that they build. Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of rethinking man's place in the world. That was a big conversation. But also a lot of big scientific discoveries happened during this time. You've got, like, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, doing his thing in mathematics, discovering gravity. Thank you, Sir Isaac Newton. (laughs) During this time, you've also got the discovery of carbon monoxide, of oxygen, and of nitrous oxide, a colorless gas that's a compound of nitrogen and oxygen. Then, at the turn of the 18th century, a 21-year-old British chemist named Humphrey Davy, he starts experimenting with the effects of this nitrous oxide. Basically, Davy and his assistant, they would take some ammonium nitrate crystals, you know, heat it up, um... As you do Uh, on a Friday night. As one does, you know, on a free afternoon. They'd collect the gas, they'd sift it through some water vapor, and they would inhale almost like an old-timey bong, if you will. (laughs) Do you have any guesses as to what it is that Davey and his assistant might have been huffing? I mean, if if they didn't die right away, then it's probably, my guess, is laughing gas, right? That Um, is correct. Yes, yeah. Nitrous oxide or laughing gas is what they were huffing, huffing back in. Say, <laughs> Basically, there's no other the way word. to put it. <laughs> yes, there's no other way. They were huffing. You know, for the benefits of, of chemistry, for the advancement of science, yeah, naturally. Science. That's, yeah. yeah. So, you know, he'd, he'd be huffing the nitrous oxide, and he describes the feeling he would get as a sublime emotion connected with high, vivid ideas. Which I feel like is like quite a poetic way to basically be like, I was high off my ass. Yeah, we getting lit up in here. (laughs) The thing that I love, too, is he wasn't just like, you know, doing the laughing gas straight. He would sometimes mix it with wine to see like what the combined effect would be. For science. (laughs) Well, to take it even further, he built a special contraption, which he called an airtight breathing box in which he would sit for hours and inhale copious amounts of laughing gas. Hours? <laughs> hours. One dentist appointment like knocks me the <laughs> F out off this stuff. Hours? Yeah. And a special room built for it? Like hot boxing laughing gas for hours at a time. Woo! Okay. And I'm glad you brought up the dentist actually because Humphrey Davy is the guy who gets credit for identifying laughing gas as a potential anesthetic. As he was documenting his experimentation, he wrote the following. Nitrous oxide, in its extensive operation, appears capable of destroying physical pain. It may probably be used with advantage during surgical operations in which no great effusion of blood takes place. It's not until a few decades later, in 1844, that a dentist in Connecticut would actually start using nitrous oxide as an anesthetic. Wherever that dentist is in Connecticut, we all owe you one. I I got it a lot as a kid, but having laughing gas as an adult was like, wait a minute, is this legal? Like, Yeah, right? I definitely remember getting laughing gas as a kid at the dentist, and I don't know, looking back now, I'm like, huh. 
I feel like technically that was the first time I got high. <laughs> Anyways, so Humphrey Davy, you know, he identifies laughing gas as an anesthetic. Um, but before it had that more medical application, laughing gas was actually used for entertainment. And that takes us to domino number two. Wow. So back in 1832, there was this young man, and he started using laughing gas as the main act in his traveling sideshow. His name was Samuel Colt. Does that name ring any bells? Does that mean anything to you? It makes me think about the gun maker, but the mixture of laughing gas and guns makes me uh, a little bit nervous. So we'll see what happens. Well, you might be onto something, Evan. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Samuel Colt's background. He was born in 1814 in Connecticut, and he learns about nitrous oxide at some point in his late teens. It's not super clear where. Some say he learned it through a chemist friend, um, or maybe he learned about it in his father's textile plant, which is where Sam worked. But it's clear that he does at some point, and he sees it as a way to potentially fund some other business ideas that he has. Okay. So the young Colt, he grows a beard, and he starts calling himself Dr. Colt. And he creates a portable laboratory that he can take on the road and perform demonstrations. One of which is he calls people up from the audience and asks them to inhale nitrous oxide. He really took a side hustle. I'm granting myself a medical degree and then taking on the road. Please continue. I'm intrigued. So the show was called The Celebrated Dr. Colt of New York, London, and Calcutta. Calcutta Again, this man, kid's this from Connecticut. Lying. Really? You've <laughs> ever been to Calcutta in your life? You from Connecticut, Colt. That's just claim your set. Stop yeah, perpetrating. It's all about the branding, you know? So Colt, you know, he travels from Buffalo to New Orleans, stopping in lecture halls and museums, performing these demonstrations for 25-cent tickets. He got a reputation as a very charismatic showman and salesman. So for the actual show, I mean, he had, like, the frat party, like, staple of the funnel and a hose. <laughs> so oh he'd God. have a funnel and a hose. And he would ask for volunteers from the crowd to come up and try and inhale the gas. They would take, like, huge huffs of the nitrous oxide and start jumping around on stage and laughing hysterically. And, you know, Samuel Colt would be, like, lecturing about the nitrous oxide as if he's this, like, you know, chemistry genius. And the crowd would just eat it up. (laughs) Oh, man. And then on top of that, he was offering private huffs of his nitrous oxide for twice the price of a show ticket. That's a hustle. Like luxury drug experience. I mean, that's a night out. Get up in your fancy clothes, put in your silk cravat and your top hat <laughs> from France or some shit and meet some guy to get high. <laughs> for science. You Let's know, not forget. For science. For science. So Samuel Colt was able to make a decent amount of money doing these traveling shows. He was really doing these shows to fund his other business interest, which you actually did guess correctly. Yes, Samuel Colt. Not just a traveling medicine man, but he had dreams of making guns. 
So he was running guns and drugs out of some wagon in mid to late 19th century. This is... And lying on his name and where he's from. This is like 19th century Breaking Bad. Like, this is what is leaving those vibes. (laughs) So... The, the reason Colt got into guns was he actually owned a pistol as a kid. It was something that belonged to his grandfather, who had fought in the American Revolution. And then a little later in life, in his adolescence, like many teens, he kind of goes through like a pyro phase. He sets off a local cannon. He also starts a fire, which gets him expelled from school. Like he's getting into shenanigans. That's one thing about this period of history that is so crazy because, like, you can literally be a wild boy, right? You're firing cannons in your neighborhood, in your municipality, like, and you still get to be, like, a captain of industry. People start calling you doctor. Yeah, he was lucky he didn't have his, like, old tweets following him into his adulthood. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah, very much a troublemaker as a young kid. And his father actually sends him off to work as a seaman on a ship traveling to India. Oh, oh, okay. You're still not from there. You may have visited there, but okay. Yes, yeah. You don't get to claim Calcutta just because you visited. Does that make me Parisian? (laughs) Yeah. Sure. Hey, if, if Colt could do it, why not the rest of us, right? Right. So it's actually on this trip that he supposedly designs the first prototype for his handgun, um, which he carves out of a block of wood, you know, with the revolving chamber and everything. Um, And with the money from the Laughing Gas show, he is able to start funding his gun dreams. And at the tender age of 22, in 1836, he finally gets his first patent on his Colt revolver, which is the really famous six-shooter. And, you know, at first, he actually struggles to get buyers. There's not that much demand for this gun. Oh, wow. Okay. However, about 10 years after he starts manufacturing them, the Colt revolver becomes really popular among Texas Rangers who are fighting in the Mexican-American War. There's even a quote from one Texas Ranger, Captain, and he said to Colt, Your pistols are the most perfect weapon in the world to keep the various warlike tribes of Indians and marauding Mexicans in subjection. So, I mean, the legacy of the Colt revolver is truly problematic and blood-soaked and, like, you know... Colt's resume is full of dirty deeds. Let's just say that. To say the, the very least. However, he's making a ton of money doing this. Like, by the late 1850s, he was considered to be one of the richest men in America. Like He probably had a private room full of laughing gas to get high off of, right? Probably. I'm making all these money selling guns. Who wants another huff? Yeah, exactly. So Colt's doing amazing. And then eventually the Civil War starts. And that takes us to domino number three. Bam! Initially, Colt was selling guns in the South, but when the war breaks out, he starts exclusively selling guns to the Union. Kind of, sort of, on the right side of history. I don't know if that counts as the right side of history, though. Like, you're still a profiteer at this point. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Samuel Colt does very well during the Civil War. You know, it's reported that the U.S. government buys over, like, 100,000 revolvers. The Colt revolver is, like, by far the most popular handgun that is used on both sides of the Civil War. You're still, like, 
producing a tool whose sole purpose is meant to rob humans of their lives. You're still making money because the U.S. government is buying, you know, hundreds of thousands of these guns from you. Like, you're still amplifying the amount of death and violence. Totally. And it's an extremely, you know, violent and bloody war that they're fighting. So, you know, naturally, the soldiers, when they're not in combat, they're looking for some way to handle this stress. And often the thing that they would reach for in their downtime is a deck of cards. During the Civil War, actually, a lot of German immigrants were fighting, actually, on both the Union and the Confederacy sides. And they brought with them their own, you know, regional card game, this French-German game. Well... If you want to be technically very precise, an Alsatian game. And they called it Euchrespiel. Is that a game that you've ever heard of, Evan? Euchrespiel in its original form, no, but I have heard of Euchre. And I'm guessing that's a truncated English of Euchrespiel. So that's my guess. That is correct. Euchrespiel gets shortened to Euchre, and it is apparently a very popular card game in some parts of the U.S. I had never heard of it. Are, not, are you, you familiar no, with not, it? No, but I also can't play spades, so, you know, the, wow, I probably should not even say that. But, Can I admit yeah, something? Because no, I, I don't know how yeah. I feel about sharing this information Simone, publicly. Li- please, but live in your truth. We Join are me. in a tough spot, you and I. I, too, do not know how to play spades, and mm, it's too nope. late. I can't ask anyone to teach me. It's a great shame. But apparently, this is how you play Euchre. So it's a card game played between two teams trying to win the most hands, which are called tricks. So face cards have the most power, and jacks are the most powerful cards of all, and they are called bowers. But Jack and Bauer makes me think Jack Bauer and Kiefer Sutherland on, t- on 24. <laughs> yeah. It'll torture you and maybe violate some of your human rights, but it'll save the day in the end. Yeah, right, right. Not that specific Jack Bauer. Um, this is the Bauer card, B-O-W-E-R. But the Americans, they're like, no, that's not enough. We need a card that's even more powerful than the Bauer card. So people would start taking a blank card or making their own additional card and calling it the best Bauer which is even more powerful than the jack. Now, this game is getting very popular. People are playing it more and more. So eventually, in 1863, a deck of cards was created that included an official best bower card called the Imperial Bower. Do you have any ideas as to what this card might be? Oh, totally. It's the Joker, right? Yes. Okay, oh, good. Evan, you are so on top of it. We, 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 we've yet to discuss any kind of reward <laughs> tiers, but I, I feel like I'm fucking hitting out the park here. So. <laughs> yes, you're nailing it. Um, so the Imperial Bower would go on to be called the Euchre, or as we now call it, the Joker. Remember, this is a brand new card hitting card decks since 1863. And this card would serve as inspiration for a young artist many years later. And that takes us to our final domino, domino number four. So in 1939, this young artist named Jerry Robinson, he's working away in his little room in the Bronx that he's renting from his aunt. 
He'd just started at Columbia University as a journalism student. But on this particular evening, he's not working on a school assignment. He's working on something that he had to do for work. You know, you could probably picture him sitting at his desk with a pencil in hand, like, working away, like, sweat dripping down his brow. And he's, like, trying to come up with this, like, really ingenious idea. Now, for a little context, I need to tell you about how Jerry got this gig in the first place. I'm with you. So a few months prior, Jerry had just graduated from high school. You know, he had these big dreams of accomplishing all these things in journalism and art. And it's like the summer before his first year of college, right? He goes to a resort in upstate New York to play tennis, have a good time, chill, whatever. And on his very first day at this resort, he is sporting this very unique outfit. He put on this linen painter's jacket on which he had like hand illustrated some drawings. And so he's like wearing this on his way to the tennis court or wherever. And on his way there, he meets this young very tan man who sees the jacket and he's like immediately intrigued. The man who happens to see this jacket is Bob Kane. What what do you know about him? So Bob Kane is credited as one of the primary creators of Batman, but you know, historians and scholars have included people like Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson as key partners of Kane who contributed Uh, significant foundational elements to what we now understand as a Batman mythology, right? Right, yes, exactly. Which which kind of brings us back to Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson, the young illustrator. So Bob goes up to Jerry and he's like, love your jacket, really cool drawings. Who uh, drew all those figures? And the kid's like, oh, I did that. So Bob's like, I like your style, kid. Like, why don't you uh, come work for me? Jerry moves to the Bronx after that summer and starts working with Bob. Yeah. And his first assignment is to come up with a new story for the Batman, which would also include some kind of villain. So he's thinking, thinking, thinking. And then he has this, like, light bulb moment and, like, goes and grabs, you know, the nearest deck of cards. And he pulls out the Joker card. He decides on that imagery. So he sketches out... This villain concept brings it to Bob and his co-creator, Bill Finger, shows them the illustration, and they were like, great, sounds good. From that point, Bill Finger did come in and flesh out the character. And this is where we get the first ever Batman comic, issue number one, the spring issue. And this is where we meet the Joker. (laughs) One of the most iconic comic book villains of all time who uh, from time to time uses laughing gas uh, as his own tool for mayhem. Yeah, and revolvers. Uh, And revolvers, there you go. It's all connected. So in that first issue, the Joker unleashes a gas on the city of Gotham that leaves a sort of macabre grin on the faces of the victims. A type of laughing gas, if you will, if you want to just bring it all together. And that is how the world is first introduced to the Joker. If I remember correctly, he kills like four or five people in that in their first appearance, like, and they're dead, dead. And I can see that in my mind, like that, that leering, menacing grin, like, you know, it's interesting how you get characters like the Joker who are like seemingly fully formed straight out the gate. 
Yeah. For you, what what does the Joker do for you as a villain character? It's not just that he's a creepy looking clown dude. It's like there's some premeditation and some planning and an element of criminal genius to his um, character. Yeah, totally. I think one of the things that's chilling about the Joker as a character is like whether he's pointing a gun at you or pumping some gas into your room, you still know that like once his presence has entered your life, like death is is not far behind. The Joker has become like synonymous with a grim, painful, and often ironic demise. And I think that's one of the things that is not changed about the character. Like he revels in in causing pain. Yeah, totally. I mean, he's this really dark disturbing character, which I feel like we've really seen played up, especially in like the more recent um, movie portrayals of the character. Um, But I feel like that makes for a very interesting dynamic and rivalry with Batman. But before we get into Batman versus Joker, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I can promise you my very best Christian Bale as Batman impression which I feel like you're going to want to stick around for. So stick around. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Welcome back. Oh, man, that's tough. Okay. Before the break... We followed the history dominoes from the discovery of laughing gas through gun-toting during the Civil War to the creation of the iconic Joker, Batman's nemesis. It's a rivalry that's kept audiences entertained for decades and has some interesting roots. So let's get back to Gotham City with Evan Narciss. In that first issue, the Batman has an opportunity to kill the Joker and he doesn't. What, like, what's up with that? Batman number one, he doesn't let the Joker die here. They're they're on a fight on a roof or somewhere, and Joker falls off, but he catches him. And he says, you're too valuable a prize to lose. You know, you can interpret that a bunch of different ways, right? But what's funny about this moment is that that beat becomes a defining element in the relationship between Batman and the Joker, right? People are always, you know, on Batman, sometimes in the fiction itself. Why don't you kill him? You know, like the world be such a much better place. And, you know, one of the answers that Batman has tended to give in these stories in those moments has been like he doesn't want to sink to the Joker's level. And I think that's important. I personally am not a fan of a Batman who kills. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Batman still is like the major exemplar of that archetype of the brooding Avenger of the night. That's scary. But is on the right side of justice. I think superheroes are symbolic and metaphorical in their power and having characters who tend to dole out death as a means of solving problems is not terribly aspirational. And I feel like that's probably the reason Batman doesn't kill Joker in this story. 
that what Batman represents in this moment is like, we can be better than that. And I think that's a powerful part of the character, too. I, I never thought about it that way, but I, I see what you mean by aspirational, like this the sense of like you want to see yourself in the hero who's still struggling to make the right decision or, you know, even if it's not the easiest thing to do, like, but ultimately is striving for that. Well, Evan, we are at the end of our domino journey. We started off at the end of the Enlightenment with good old chemist Humphrey Davy huffing laughing gas for science, obviously. <laughs> um, then Samuel Colt funded his guns with his laughing gas shows. And then finally, years later, we have the Joker using guns and laughing gas to bring mayhem to Gotham City. Yes, yes, yeah. You know, we don't typically give out prizes on our show, but... You got so many correct answers. I feel like you have earned that title of world's greatest detective. So I bestow it officially upon you. Okay. Congratulations. I'll wait for my certificate in the mail. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Thank you so much for joining me going through all these dominoes. It was dark, but it was fun. Yes. I mean, kind of like (laughs) the Joker himself. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, Evan. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ramoy Phillip. Next week, we're revisiting one of the trippiest moments in baseball history. There were times when the ball was hit back at me. I jumped because I thought it was coming fast, but the ball was coming slow. And sometimes when it came back to me, it looked big as a balloon, and then sometimes it looked small. The rest of our team are producers Amy Padula and Sarah Craig. Our associate producer is Julie Carley. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Zach Stewart-Pontier and Andrea B. Scott. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzika. If you want to read some of Evan's work, check out the graphic novel Rise of the Black Panther, where he dives into T'Challa's backstory. Special thanks to Mark Tyler Nobleman, Jens Robinson, Alexis Williams, Tyree Rush, and to Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. Okay, okay, it's gonna gonna happen. It's happening. Welcome back. Oh, God. (laughs) 